Hi, and welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Barris. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm the show's producer, Nat Geld. In our first season, we started to explore the brain basis of conscious experiences, animal consciousness, conscious versus unconscious processes, and neurorobotics, along with a special tribute to the brain pioneer Gerald M. Edelman, who received a Nobel Prize in Medicine in the 1970s. In later decades, he spent much of his time thinking about the brain basis of consciousness, and we were honored to record many of our first season episodes in Gerald Edelman's home with his son, neuroscientist David Edelman, as our co-host. I want to thank all of our devoted listeners for your support and encouragement during season one while we were getting our sea legs. We're very grateful to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm here today with our host, Bernard Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his latest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. And to show our appreciation, we're offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of his book, On Consciousness. Just stay tuned to the end of the episode, and I'm going to give you all the details. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness. And it must be said, Bernie is one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. <laughs> Hi, Bernie. Good morning. Hi there. Yeah, thanks for uh, this wonderful introduction. Uh, please guide me as we go along because uh, I'll need all the guidance I can get. You bet. I got my chair and my whip, and we're excited to kick off season two with our amazing guest. And I know you know a little bit about her, so I'm going to hand off the talking stick to you, Bernie. Great. Today's guest for unconsciousness is Dr. Heather Berlin who is now working at Mount Sinai Medical Center doing extremely interesting applied and fundamental brain research. And she is much focused on the very traditional question of impulse control. And impulse, maybe she'll tell us a little bit about the various kinds of impulse control. But what I know about it is basically that everybody... Every philosopher, every historian that I know has talked about it because life has been so chaotic for so many people. And it's not just at the individual level, it's also at the intra-psychic level within ourselves. And of course, at the social level and tribal level and on and on and on. So this is profoundly important work on a really ancient and enduring uh, problem. And I'll ask uh, Heather to please give us some examples, maybe, of impulse control, when it works well, when it doesn't work, that kind of thing. Dr. Heather Berlin is one of the world's experts on this question of impulse control in the brain. Uh, and how did you get interested in the brain basis of impulse control, Heather? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. This is a real pleasure. And yeah, so I got interested in impulse control because I was really trying to look at what traits kind of make us distinctive amongst other primates. And that got me interested in the prefrontal cortex, the functions of the prefrontal cortex, how that relates to personality and so forth. But one of the major functions is this ability to control our impulses. Now, there's a variety of different definitions of, of that uh, or, or kind of ways to operationalize that. But in general, it's that we have these basic basal, let's call them animalistic desires for immediate pleasure or avoidance of pain. You know, Freud would call them our id impulses. Other animals have them, the drive for food, if you're food deprived or water, if you're water deprived or sex, if you're sex deprived or if you're looking to procreate. And that, that drives us. It's evolutionarily adaptive, but it's not always adaptive to act on these desires in every circumstance. So we have the 
roughly speaking, kind of this prefrontal cortex that evolved that kind of looks at what the future consequences of our actions are or looks at the environmental circumstances and trying to determine or help us make an adaptive decision about, let's say, whether to behave or not or whether to flee or fight. And it gives us this capacity to kind of override that basic desire for, let's say, immediate pleasure in order to gain some long-term, perhaps greater reward. And that, that's basically, so, so you can think of it like delayed gratification is a big aspect of, of impulse control. And humans seem to have the largest capacity for this than any other animal. We can think the furthest ahead into the future as well, which I think is, goes hands in hand with this ability. Right. You've just mentioned two important brain regions, the prefrontal cortex uh, and uh, the basal brain nuclei, which are basically uh, little nut-shaped objects uh, at the bottom of the cerebrum. And would you like to help us visualize those two structures? They're enormously important. Well, you can think of, I mean, one very important um, brainstem nuclei is something we call the ventral tegmental area, which is part of this dopaminergic system. So dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter in these reward systems in the brain. So you can think of this sort of this brainstem nuclei that's feeding dopamine to these networks in the brain, there's three basic or so, I mean, there's a number of, of networks, but one very important one is called the mesolimbic system, which is you get the release of dopamine from this ventral tegmental area into the nucleus accumbens, which is this reward pathway in the brain, which is involved a lot in like addiction. Okay, let me, let me, if you don't mind, I'm imagining listeners in the audience who are a little bit baffled by all those words. <laughs> Let me try to describe it. The right. prefrontal cortex is the front mm -hmm. of the frontal cortex, yeah. right? And yeah. it occupies what? About the frontal third of the outer cortex, something like that? Yeah, I would say that the frontal cortex, perhaps like the third, and then the prefrontal you know, is a smaller portion a smaller, of the frontal cortex. Right. Yeah. So, so if I'm uh, clapping my forehead <laughs> like slap, I couldn't believe this. Uh, right. I'm slapping my prefrontal cortex. Is that right? Yeah. And mo it, you can think of this, a very important part of the prefrontal cortex is what we call the orbital prefrontal cortex. And it's right above your eye socket. Ah. So if you think about the orbits of your eyes and right. that part of the brain that would be just above your eye sockets. Right. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, slap yourself in the forehead, <laughs> like joy, that would be your prefrontal cortex, which Good. is also why it's most vulnerable to when people get into say car accidents and things, you know, cause you, you hit the front of your head and, yep. um, and then mm -hmm. the, the brain can sort of shake inside your skull and, and bang up against that frontal part. And that's why you see a lot of damage when people have safety right. questions or car accidents. Yeah. Right. Um, and the other part that we're talking about, the limbic and the basal areas, if you sort of go directly inward into your, it's very hard to explain this without a visualization. Well, I, but I, if you I, had I to, see your gesturing. Yeah. Uh, yes, and I, I see am. you pointing at your cheeks <laughs> from the yes. side. Is that right? Yes. So I'm imagining a line coming from your finger, your forefingers that are pointing at your cheeks, mm -hmm. uh, or is a little bit more back? I would say a little that. bit further back. Yeah, I would say like around where your ears are. If you went directly inward from each side, starting at your ears, just going straight in toward the middle of your head. Around there is where you'd find these more these limbic structures, like involved in reward, like the nucleus accumbens. Great. So it's the line between your two ears, mm -hmm. and and then it's the center of that line, roughly. And there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of structures which are really quite small, but they are enormously powerful. I was wondering if you could give us some examples without telling us who the person is or whatever, uh, nothing personal, but uh, what the 
type of problem is that one can get from dysfunctions in uh, different parts of the brain? Mm. I mean, there's there's a plethora of uh, different problems. Part of right. well, part of the the reason that I got interested in neuroscience and in particular neuropsychology is because I think you can understand a lot about the brain when things go wrong, right? When everything is working properly, right. you know, it's like your car, if it's working properly, you don't really understand how it's, it's just working. But yeah. then when something goes wrong, you have to kind of dig in and figure out like, is it the carburetor? I don't, I don't know a lot about cars, but you know, so that was the whole field of neuropsychology is kind of looking at, okay, well, what happens when a person has a, a lesion or some damage in, in this particular part of the brain, right. what is the um, dysfunction that, that kind of correlates with that? And that's mm. how we kind of map out like localization of function in the brain. So that's in the field of kind of neuropsychology. And I can, I can talk about some interesting issues there with patients, but then there's the field of closely related and overlapping psychiatry where there's no clear like lesion in the head. Nobody has a particular area of brain damage caused, let's say, by a stroke mm -hmm. um, or removal of the brain because of epilepsy, let's say. But there's a subtle neurochemical imbalance or there's uh -huh. a problem in terms of the neurocircuitry. And then you develop these psychiatric issues. But we can learn a lot from, from these patients. So one, one thing that I did w in terms of my research, but I can talk a bit about individual patients, but just to get an overview of some of my research, I actually compared patients with lesions or damage in the prefrontal cortex, in particular, the orbital prefrontal cortex that I mentioned uh, before. Mm -hmm. um, these people either had neurosurgical removal of that part of the brain for various reasons, perhaps because of a tumor, or they had a stroke that affected that part of the brain. So they had a very clear lesion. And I compared them on their ability uh, on impulse control on a variety of measures to measure impulse I control. See. I compared them to psychiatric patients who have impulse control problems. And in this case, it was people who have borderline personality disorder. Um, Can you and describe that uh, yes. for us? Borderline personality disorder um, is basically they have unstable relationships. They go from like extreme liking to extreme hating the same person. They have an unstable sense of self or identity. And they engage in a lot of impulsive behavior, like they'll go on a shopping spree or they're sexually promiscuous or they do um, suicide attempts or a lot of self-harming behavior with cutting. I see. So this is um, a radical problem in people's lives. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of emotional instability, basically. And a right. classic example I often give is, um, this is an old reference now, but Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction is a classic borderline patient. Or a more recent one is... Um, there was a film with Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie called Girl Interrupted. So these, these unstable, um, um, uh, unstable emotion uh, are not able to regulate emotions, which is a problem with impulse control as well. Right. Because right? emotional regulation is, you know, you have this emotion coming from that limbic area and then the prefrontal cortex kind of regulates the emotion. But if you're not right. able to regulate emotions, it's a problem, you know, in a way with impulse control as well. So, these patients, what I found in this research was that they were behaviorally, when I did them these experimental tests, they were very similar to the people who had a lesion in that part of the brain. Oh, really? And that was, yeah, which was the, one of the first studies, actually, that had compared psychiatric patients to people with precise brain lesions. And then I also had a control group of people who had brain lesions in a different part of the prefrontal cortex, right. the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is a little mm -hmm. bit further, like where your temples are. Right. And um, those people did not have the impulse control problem. So we really were able to hone in on oh, really? the orbital prefrontal cortex oh, yeah, as the problem. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they had in common, which was another aspect of impulse control, is time perception problems. Really? So they had a, yeah, a faster subjective sense of time. So the idea of, let's say, the classic marshmallow test, you know, you can have one marshmallow now or wait and have two later, right? And children, this is a classic study that was done with by Walter Michel at Columbia years ago, where uh -huh. he followed children for years and found that the ones that could control the impulse and wait to have two marshmallows later had better SAT scores later in life, better body mass index, like more successful careers, all these things, right? But really, it was just a measure so, of executive. So if you're a child and uh, 
and you can't stop eating the marshmallow, uh, yes. uh, that's predictive of what happens later on in life. Is that right? That's what that study found. Now, there's some controversy later about this because they said that a lot of these kids, they didn't look at really like socioeconomic differences because let's say you take a kid from a, you know, poor background and maybe like right. they don't know if that next marshmallow is going to come. Like you better eat that marshmallow now yes. because you don't know. So there are, there were issues related to like not taking in the kind of environmental um, issue factors, but in general, I think it is a measure. It's an early measure, simple measure of executive function. And if you if you take that, if you scale that out to the rest of your life, you know, when you're in college, do you go to the party tonight or do you stay home and study instead? And if you stay home and study, then maybe you get better grades. Then maybe you get a better job. You know, and it, you can just play it out across. But so that's all what post I, postponing immediate gratification. Exactly. But what I found with the time perception that it's not just about the salience of the reward, like I need that reward now versus later. Mm -hmm. It's that people with prefrontal cortex dysfunctions had time perception problems. So waiting five minutes might subjectively feel like forever. Oh, for them. Really? It might feel like it's 10 minutes. Right. So it's not just about the magnitude of the reward. It's also about waiting the subjective sense of time and how long that is because it's it varies amongst people and i found that that same part of the brain involved in impulse control also is related to time perception so now um, and they go we're hand talking about the basal brain nuclei or we're talking about no, the, prefrontal cortex the orbital prefrontal cortex ah right, okay is, good yes yeah so, but the people who had dorsolateral prefrontal cortex yep. damage mm -hmm. did not have the time perception problems, did not have the impulse control problems. So it was very specific to that yes. part of the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. um, but these patients working with them, you know, was very difficult. So, you know, for example, I was, I was in, in London doing this research. Well, I was in Oxford and I had to see the patients in London and take all my equipment, get to London. It was a whole took me like three hours on trains and things. It was just outside of London. And I would get there and, you know, sometimes the patient would say, you know, I just don't feel like testing today. Oh. Or, you know, I, or somebody would be having some sort of like, these were inpatients, by the way, they were self-harming inpatients. So they all had self-harming mm -hmm. as a kind of behavioral objective measure of, of impulsivity. And like, or somebody would have a breakdown in the hallway and I'd be in the middle of testing. And then the patient would, run out to the hallway to go see what's going on and a lot of drama. And then, you know, they would just say, I'm not going to go back to testing anymore. So and that's it was very difficult. Also. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. It's just sort of acting on your immediate feeling rather than saying like, I okay, see. I feel like I'd like to go help that person in the hall, but maybe this is not a good moment and I should wait until I'm done mm -hmm. with the test. Right. But, but they can't seem to override that. They just go with what they're feeling in that Interesting. moment. Um, what's interesting about borderline patients is that, and any personality disorder for that matter, is that they're very hard to treat because they tend to be kind of lifelong, right? right? Cause you think about personality is ingrained in so many parts of who you are and there's a genetic component right. that it's, it's very difficult, um, to treat. And so after working with these patients for a long time, I realized that me personally, I wanted to have a bigger impact on people's immediate lives. And, you know, I started getting interested more in compulsive behavior, like obsessive compulsive disorder, because I found that they were more amenable to certain types of treatment, like exposure therapy. I see. So, um, so now you're shifting yeah. from personality disorders, which tend to be incredibly persistent and long-term, and hard to change. Uh, and you're now looking at a patient population that hopefully is going to be more amenable to treatment. Yes, but there, there's a lot of overlap. So first, it was a gradual process. I was very interested in impulsivity. And then, I mean, I still am. But then I said, how does this relate to compulsive behavior? And there's a lot of overlap. Generally speaking, you can think of impulsive behavior is sort of like wanting immediate gratification right now. And that overrides everything. Right. Whereas compulsive is trying to 
avoid something negative, doing oh, really? a behavior in order to reduce anxiety. Yeah. So, you know, so, so a person. So, compulsive, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, I, I just, as usual, I'm trying to see if we can get some increased clarity for people who are not familiar with all this. These are very classical questions, right? They're very uh, deep, traditional questions that have been enormously difficult to help people with. And so impulsive and compulsive. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I tend to think of impulsive as the marshmallow a problem for children where you basically ask the child to to wait or to do something else before they eat that delicious, wonderful, sweet uh, marshmallow. And with compulsions, you're kind of driven to do things with the imaginary fear that something terrible is going to happen if you don't check the lock on the outside of your door more than once, one time, two times, three times, four times, you keep on going back to your key in the door lock just to let go of some of that fear. And it's repetitive, right? Yeah, so what it is is basically you're engaging in a behavior which we would call the compulsion in order to reduce anxiety and the anxiety is usually related to the thought, which we would call the obsession, and also usually related to some form of uncertainty. So if you have a thought, let's say the thought, the, the, the obsession that keeps popping up in your head, unwanted thought, right. is, did you close the door? Are you sure you closed the door? You, you don't, you know, because normally our brains, there's a certain uh, loop in our brain that gives us that feeling of certainty. Like when right. you, and also a feeling of completion. Like yes. when you brush your teeth in the morning, you're not putting on a timer so you know when you're done. You just hit a point where you're like, oh, that feels like it's done now. Or right. when you're in the shower, you get to a point, you do a kind of ritual, and then you say, okay, I feel like I'm done. And other animals have that too. Like cats, you know, wipe their ears right. in a certain way, and they do it a certain number of times. That's self grooming. Exactly. And that is a circuit in our brain in a part of the subcortical brain, a part called the basal ganglia, which is involved in that process, which is adaptive. But like most psychiatric illnesses, it's like something adaptive that then goes awry. And right. And, and that's a really important thought. So, so we have even our remote ancestors before hominids, before humanoids, there, were, there was a whole suite of adaptations that our ancestors had to have. And most of those, at least many of them, were for predictable jobs that we need to get done, like self-grooming. If, if you're a cat, you need to do self-grooming for a variety of reasons. Being clean is one of them. Uh, getting rid of pests is another one. But also self-soothing, perhaps, so you feel good, all that kind of stuff. And those are kind of routines that, that we learn. And once we learn them, most of the time we don't have to change them. Then we start confronting more novelty and more challenges. So tell us more about how we adapt to all that. Well, if some of these circuits are out of whack, let's say, you know, there's either imbalance of a neurochemical or the neurocircuitry, then we have these ritual behaviors, but there's no feeling of, oh, it's complete. I can stop now. Or let's say you have a self-soothing behavior, which is you know, grooming or, but they over groom to the point, or maybe they start picking their skin or picking right. their hair or, so there's that aspect of it, that behavioral aspect, but there's also the uncertainty and the reassurance seeking in some people. So it's, mm -hmm. did I, you know, lock it? I got to check. Oh, I'm not sure. It doesn't feel right. I got to check. I got to check. Or am I going to get this deadly disease? I don't know. Did I, you know, I got to wash my hands. I have to wash my hands again and again and again. And so oh, I see. We, the behaviors are a way to decrease the anxiety that's right. produced mm -hmm. by the thought. So you have the kind of repetitive behavior aspect of it and that ritualistic, but you also have those anxiety reducing behaviors, mm -hmm. you know, that are meant to soothe and to reassure the right. reassurance is the huge part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those patients tend to be amenable to exposure therapy, which I can explain. And then also we, for severe patients, 
I've been involved in some trials where we actually use deep brain stimulation to treat some of those patients. And it's actually in the nucleus accumbens, in the ventral striatum, that you stimulate. And we don't know whether it's knocking out a faulty circuit or stimulating a circuit that's not. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of theories about what it's actually doing. Um, and there's a lot of research in this area, but right. it tends to help. It tends to help uh, these patients. Yeah. Heather, what do you mean by deep brain stimulation? I wondered if you could walk us through that so that everyone is on the same page with you and we have a clear understanding of it. Yeah. So certain patients who have tried everything, whether it's psychotherapy, different treatments like SSRI or serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the the first line kind of neurochemical treatments, and they don't work and they're very severe. The next line of treatment is what we call deep brain stimulation, where it's minimally invasive surgery, you basically drill these two little burr holes in the skull, you're out, the patient is under anesthesia for that. And then you slip in these tiny thin little wires with electrodes at the tips of them that can stimulate certain parts of the brain. So you can implant these electrodes and then they are, the wires go just under the skin and then are connected to a little battery pack that's implanted in your chest wall. And then you can control those stimulators with a remote control. Not you, but the doctor can. And we can turn it up, we can turn it down, we can it has there's four little contact points. So you can slightly vary the location of where the stimulation is happening. Usually it's implanted bilaterally, that means in both one in each hemisphere. And it can, as I said, stimulate, but stimulate might act as knocking out. So if you stimulate at high levels that can actually work to knock out a connection. And so whether it's because it's working because it's excitatory or inhibitory, we're still kind of playing around with that. And we're finding some interesting things like certain people who have implants for, this started out with Parkinson's and and movement disorders. We were putting them, placing them for these movement disorders. But sometimes if they're turned up too high, so it helps with the Parkinson's, but then they get impulsive issues. So it's all very delicate in terms of where exactly it's inserted and where you're stimulating and how high or how low. So right now it's still early days in terms of how, you know, we're learning about it. I mean, science is often an art as well as a science, but it really can have significant effect and impact on people with not only OCD, um, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, but also people with intractable or untreatable depression as well. Um, oh, that's and interesting. That and, and that you yeah. would normally imagine that depression is an emotional problem, or maybe, I guess, one of the technical terms that people use right now is social defeat. So that if you're a rat in a cage, and you're trying to meet a fellow rat and impress him or her to satisfy your biological drives, And at some point, you get frustrated in that process, and you get locked out of that relationship because rats are social. The rat goes into a kind of a classical posture, right? The the kind of defeated hang dog, let the head hang down, and, and the body chemistry changes. And that's at least an experimental model of depression. And of course... It's not identical to many things that human beings go through, but human beings also have somewhat similar life situations. And so so this is a surprise because I did not think of this as an impulse control problem or a compulsive treatment problem. So how are they related? So I wouldn't I, I wouldn't put it in the category of impulsive or compulsive. The brain area that we stimulate for depression is different. It's not uh-huh. in the nucleus accumbens or ventral striatum. It is called Brodmann area 25, which is anterior cingulate, which is a structure within the prefrontal cortex. And it tends to be the white matter that you're stimulating. But with depression, the severe kind, so some of these depressions that we can in- induce or depressive like behavior that we can induce, let's say in rats might not be the same kind of severity as the kind that we see in the patients who Uh need the deep brain stimulation. And those might be more of a kind that is more genetic where they have a genetic predisposition. And then a 
let's say a defeat paradigm or like a, a you know negative social interactions can be the spark that you know so the, so with everything in psychiatry we call it the stress diathesis model where you have a sort of diathesis which is like a predisposition let's say a genetic predisposition and then you have a stressor and you, you stress somebody who's already vulnerable and then the illness can manifest so um, the stress is coming from the environment perhaps yeah, uh, and right. the diathesis is another word for predisposition, which could be genetic or some kind of interactive thing. But it's it's prior, right? You come into life yes. uh, with that particular yeah. tendency. Mm-hmm. And you know what? We're some people are looking at now is as related to this is resilience. Is why is it that? Right. Some people can have the same severe stressor. Let's say right. you take war veterans and some go on to develop PTSD and others are resilient and don't. And what is different with them? And, and right. there are certain protective factors, one of which is genetic. Another is having a larger hippocampus and larger amygdalae. Now, is that because, you know, were they born with that as a protective mechanism or perhaps when they were growing up? Because if high cortisol levels in children... And, can and cortisol is the stress hormone, right? Yes, right, right. So if you're exposed to a lot of stressors early in life, environmental stressors, you will release cortisol, cortisol right. what we call gluco, glucocorticoids, and they affect the development of the hippocampus, the memory part of the brain. Right. So if you're exposed to a lot of stressors early on, you might have a, develop a smaller hippocampus and therefore be less protected later in life when you have further stressors. So it all kind of is interrelated, right? right. What, what happens to your environment and what your predispositions are, and they all kind of come together. But so with depression, I do think there are certain types of depression that are induced because of environmental circumstances. But sometimes when those interact with a, a genetic predisposition, you can get these very, very severe types of depression that are not amenable to the traditional drugs and then they need to go this step further for deep brain stimulation. And Helen Mayberg, who also actually I work with at Mount Sinai, she's there now and working on this, is the one who discovered that this area 25 via neuroimaging studies was the, the main area within a circuit that seems to be involved in depression, that it's a node within a circuit. And that was the idea behind trying to stimulate this area. And then it got very, um, had very good results. And and that could be genetically shaped, the area twenty five. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's hard to say. You know, it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? If it's, right. you know, it's probably a combination of both genetic and environmental, and the way it developed over the course of a lifetime and the connectivity. So there are probably a lot of factors involved, and as I said, it's part of a circuit, and people are experimenting with different targets. So each psychiatric disorder that is amenable to deep brain stimulation treatment can also have there are t- different targets that might work better or worse. And and not every psychiatric or neurological illness is going to be deep brain stimulation will not always be effective. Like for example, autism, where you see it's a difference of structures in, in the way the brain is connected in many ways. There's no one place you can kind of intervene uh-huh. that would help. Yeah. Right. Psychosurgery has gotten a very bad name and a bad reputation from obviously films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, you know, with frontal lobotomies and things where people were doing very rough things to the brain. And But the way I see it now is it's actually minimally invasive. It's reversible. It's adjustable. So for example, what they used to do for severe OCD, and when I say severe, I mean, these people cannot leave their house. You know, they are non-functional. Because it's, it's very they severe. need to keep washing their hands or they... In whatever. some cases, mm-hmm. yeah, there are different subtypes of OCD. They're the checkers, they're the contamination type, which are hand washers, you know. But let's just take a contamination type one. You know, there's been a patient where they literally can't, it will take them three hours in the morning just to do a bathroom routine, right? Uh-huh. Or if you get them to into the office, they won't sit on the chair because of fear of contamination. You'll do the uh-huh. whole interview standing up. Mm-hmm. They have to, if uh, one patient had a spouse where, you know, the spouse, there was like a, 
this was before pre-pandemic. And by the way, the way the pandemic has affected people is we're is talking about well. the COVID virus. COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So pre-COVID, this would be a decontamination center, let's say, in the garage where the husband had to strip down all of his clothes right when he comes back from out being outdoors, uh -huh. go straight into the shower and decontaminate and put on fresh clothes before even coming, you know, near the wife. And, and, it, and this is essentially psychological, right? Or let's say yes. it's either brain uh, and or psychological, but it's it's not as if the husband is necessarily dirty or infected or whatever. No, exactly. He just would have been coming from the outdoors, but in right. the off chance that he might have some strange contact. I mean, I had a patient who had a fear of toxins. So it wasn't so much like getting a virus or something. It was toxins like in cleaners and in um, everyday oh. uh, products. And so there's always like a little bit of truth to it. Like there were these endocrine disruptors and in, in certain right. things. Um, but she had this fear that her child, when her child was in utero, that she exposed them to contaminants oh. and she became just obsessed with it. And so like to the point of, you know, Going to Starbucks, like you can't touch the counter because that counter would be have been cleaned right. by some mm. you know toxic thing, and it went and went on and on to the extent the water, you know, what's in the water, and the water's contaminated, and mm -hmm. so it's just all day your thoughts are consumed by this, and right. it, you you're incapacitated, you cannot function. Right. So these people who where nothing else works, they used to go in and actually lesion those parts of the brain. Like, mm -hmm. like a, like sort of a lobotomy, but for not the frontal part of the brain, but for these subcortical structures. And then if it doesn't and, and work, now you have brain, tiny, brains tiny, tiny lesions, I assume. Tiny, tiny lesions, but they're still permanent. And if it doesn't work, right. now you have so brain it's a, damage. It's a very serious ethical and medical uh, question. And people argue about it and think about the pros right. and cons and so on. But in this case, so it's an alternative to that lesioning. So now you're just sticking in electrodes. It's reversible. It's adjustable. It doesn't right. damage the brain. So it's a really viable alternative to the lesioning. And it's much more targeted. And finally, if you think about uh, with depression, severe depression, they would have ECT or electric shock therapy, right. which can have a lot of, you know, memory issues can occur from that. And you're basically, it's, it's like if your computer doesn't work, you're turning it off and turning it back on again and like rebooting it and something happens. Whereas this is like your computer is broken, you shut down a particular app, you know, and solve the problem. It gets right. much more targeted than having to just reboot the whole, the whole system. Good. Natalie, you had a question. What types of successes have you experienced? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge success rate. I think it's about um, 40 to 50% of patients with like severe untreatable depression mm -hmm. have a really significant response. And it's about... 60 to 70% of patients with severe OCD have significant improvement. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge difference. And if you think about it, these are people who, I mean, some of which have been inpatients, have been on every mm -hmm. drug, have tried, you know, with depression, you have to have tried and failed ECT or electric shock mm -hmm. therapy to even be eligible. So they've kind of nothing has worked. And they, like, let's say for the depression, cannot leave their house mm -hmm. you know, or in bed. To have the kind of improvement where now they can function and go outside and, and the same thing with the OCD patients, it's remarkable. And by the way, we test out these stimulators in the operating room so that we actually wake up the patients during the surgery because the brain itself can't feel any pain. Like even though it's the pain sensor of our body, it itself can't feel any pain. So once you've, you put them out to like cut through the scalp, which does have pain sensors, but once you're in the brain, you can personally be fully awake and you talk to them. And so we will test out the electrodes in the operating room. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, you can see an immediate, like a person with depression, suddenly you turn on the electrode, you don't tell them when it's on or off, right? And their whole face lights up. Mm -hmm. And you say like, and you say, what do you feel like? And they say, oh, it feels wonderful. It feels like I won the lottery. It's so <laughs> great. And like, as they're talking, you turn off the electrodes and you just see their whole affect go right back down. Really? Wow. It's so remarkable. And so you're really going in. It's it's getting away from, you know, with neuroimaging, which we've done now for the last few decades, is which was a huge significant advance in neuroscience, but it was correlation, right? This part of the brain lights up when, you know, you do this task. Right. Now we're getting at causation, causation. You know, we're going in, we're stimulating particular parts of the brain, and we are changing people's 
emotions and thoughts and behaviors. And, and so sometimes you really see very it powerful. instantly, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's amazing, especially if you spent your life as a psychotherapist, for example, and just worrying about these problems in your patients that they bring to you. And you have a sense that there isn't anything you can do or it would have to take years or it's too expensive or something. And suddenly there is a, a miraculous solution that you never expected. Yes. For me, I came at it, interestingly, the opposite way where I've spent the majority of my career as a cognitive neuroscientist interested yes. in the brain and and consciousness and unconscious processes and how they affect people. And from there, I started working with clinical populations to try to understand the brain better. And then from there, I got very interested in, wait, how can I have an impact on just an individual person in their lives? Right. And that's when I more recently did a re-specialization to also get a clinical license so I can treat individual patients. Oh, um, really? Using, yeah, so using my knowledge and understanding of the neuroscience to help is sort of a neuroscience informed kind of treatment using psychotherapy. But so I kind of came at it yes. from a different angle, first being a neuroscientist, then becoming a clinician only recently. And now I can kind of combine these two perspectives. You know, I think it, it's, it's unique. I think a lot of people are either just kind of looking at the hardware and seeing how that works or looking at kind of the right. software, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But this, how they're intimately related, I think is very important both for research and for treatment. Uh, so the so, science yeah. is getting there, is your sense. Is that correct? I mean, we're moving in, in, you know, obviously it's a slow process and one discovery begets another and another. But there are some, like, I would say the last, honestly, in terms of psychiatry, the last like 50 years of psychiatry, there weren't significant developments. You know, there'd be Right. an SSRI and maybe you have like a slight variation on which receptor you are targeting and, you know, very yes. subtle, but, but recently I'd say in the last five to 10 years now, we're having this kind of renaissance in psychiatry in this area of the psychedelic psychotherapy and, and rediscovering the use of psychedelics to treat um, different psychiatric illness. And I think it's really a big breakthrough and I've seen it, profoundly and just in on anecdotally in patients, but also in the research. And now, for example, Mount Sinai is starting a center to do experiments with psychedelics and there's well, MDMA for PTSD. That is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be very, very fascinating to many, many people. Uh, so can you give us a little summary of the new discoveries in the use of psychedelics? So there are a number. One is the use of MDMA or what would be like the street drug of ecstasy, or now they have Molly with a more pure format. But that for the treatment of PTSD, there is, and I could talk about each one in detail, but just generally speaking, there is psilocybin, which is the ingredient in mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms to treat anxiety and people with end of life issues uh, who have, let's say terminal cancer and have severe anxiety about death. And then there is ketamine, which is not quite a psychedelic. It's a dissociative anesthetic and that for the treatment of severe depression and particular uh, suicidality. And it just has a immediate profound effect. Um, now it's just been FDA approved the ketamine as an intranasal spray called eacetalopram, which is now being used as a treatment for uh, depression, but they have intravenous. People go in for like a intravenous ketamine treatment for depression. So those are the, the major ones right now. But you can do one session with a psychotherapist, let's say of MDMA or one or to three sessions, and it can really have a long lasting effect. And now the more recently people are looking at DMT or the ingredient in ayahuasca to as a treatment as well for certain psychiatric illnesses and so the studies now uh, looking at yeah so this is kind of a revelation uh, to the patient who's been suffering from this condition maybe for a long time and and there's a lot of 
pain and, and negative effects on other people also. And suddenly you drop acid in, in the old 60s slang. Uh, right. <laughs> or, uh, or you take MDMA and you take it in microdoses. Is that correct or, or what? No, actually, it's not in microdoses. It's actually, you take a kind of a dose that would give you a, an effect. We find that actually the microdose, so some people like, like it's Silicon Valley and whatnot, or it's this trendy thing to do microdosing, especially out there on the West Coast. But that people <laughs> well, say they're we more. Know what they're like. <laughs> <laughs> Those West Coast hippies. No, um, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they say it makes them more creative. But actually, studies show that that's not necessarily the case. Actually, when you do these microdoses, you don't get that creative effect. But at the higher, slightly higher doses, where you do get a kind of psychedelic effect, an out-of-body experience, so part of it is, well, each drug is different. Part of it, let's say with the psilocybin or the mushrooms, we think that some of the effect has to do with the dissolution of the ego. So when uh, you that, dissolve uh, the ego. Uh, uh, yeah. that, that's a charged phrase, and mm-hmm. uh, I'd love to get a little bit more clarity on that. So kind of our ego is like our sense of self. But when we look at what where that is kind of instantiated in the brain, there are certain parts of the prefrontal cortex, back to the prefrontal cortex, that kind of encode our sense of self. And one in particular is a part I mentioned before, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which is like our sense of agency and also like our inner critic. So when we ruminate and we have anxiety, you actually get increased activation of parts of the prefrontal cortex. So like with impulsive, impulse control problems, you have decreased activation in that parts of the prefrontal cortex. With compulsive or anxiety, you have overactivation. So that rumination and going in circles and you can't stop and the inner critic, oh, what do people think of me? How am I doing? You know, but if you and, turn and that part of the brain down. At this very moment, uh, you are pointing to your temples. Is is yes. that roughly correct? And, and yes. that's important uh, for people who, who don't cotton to the long words like dorsolateral cortex and such. Yes. Uh, but that's very, very important. It sounds uh, like those are real discoveries. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of like the part of your brain that is the filter system that filters your behavior to make sure you're conforming to social norms and and whatnot. So one thing, obviously there's the anecdotal, like suddenly these patients where we've tried everything, you know, nothing works and suddenly they have these profound shifts that are long lasting. And so the next question is, well, what's the underlying brain mechanism, right? Because with the psychiatric medication, you have to constantly be on it for it to work, right? Every day you wake up, you take your, whatever it is, your serotonin agonist. And as soon as it wears off the next morning, you got to take another one, right? It has to stay in your system for it to have the effect. Whereas this, you do it one or two times and something changes and suddenly, you know, the anxiety is gone or the depression is much better. And so what is it? And so we have some hypotheses. Well, one thing we know is that, let's say the psilocybin tends to affect this dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, related to our sense of self. And when it's turned down, you kind of lose your sense of self. You feel interconnected. You kind of get that sense of like oneness with everything, something larger than yourself. And all these like little individual problems and the ruminations kind of dissipate. And that's almost similar to like when people are in these flow states or certain meditative states where you lose your sense of self and you feel as associated with very positive emotions. Um, And there might just be some sort of, because of this interconnectivity, like some sort of psychic shift in a way that is long lasting, that is permanent. And so like, let's say, for example, the fear of death, which is actually, if you dig deep enough, is the sort of underlying a lot of our anxieties, right? Like, why are you afraid of, let's say, contamination type OCD, like afraid of germs? Well, it's because I'm going to get some bad disease and I'm going to die. And death is like the ultimate fear. Or why are you afraid of spiders? Because spiders can be poisonous and bite me and I'm going to die. So if you, if, you know, you take away that, that deep-seated underlying fear to much of our anxiety, which is death, and if you can remove that, then it's sort of like a domino effect and all these other things can fade away. Or like with depression, a lot of the rumination, it's the idea is that your default mode or your kind of basic mode that your brain is in where you're not engaged in a specific task 
is if your default mode is rumination, like whenever you just think of yourself, you're ruminating. But this this psychedelic experience can almost break that cycle or break the kind of strongholds that these negative emotions have over your executive function system, let's say, that it can just have a profound shift. That's with the um, psychedelics. With the MDMA, it might be slightly different. With the MDMA, it's that you might be in a very comfortable state when you're on it and that it allows you to bring up these uncomfortable memories that normally provoke a very negative like emotion. So you can't even tolerate it. You have to suppress it. But in this case, it allows you to bring it up in a neutral or in a positive environment and in a way like reintegrate it into your brain. So you can have the memory, but it doesn't have to be associated with the horrible trauma like you experienced, like reliving the events, right? A lot of people- Softening it, right. Exactly. So in a way you still say, okay, yes, that happened to me, but it's not going to trigger all these horrible emotions. And so it's almost like breaking that cycle and using the a drug. Spiral, to, right? Exactly. They they actually take the drug and have the experience with the therapist present. Ah. So it's not like because some people are like, oh, I just go to the club and you know do the MDMA right. and then I'll see my therapist the next day and I'll be fine. No, it's actually a very prescribed. It's a it's a trained therapist who you go in a room and it'll be might be an eight hour session. Mm-hmm. where you are sitting with the therapist and they are guiding you through the experience. And it's a way to actually uncover things that might be suppressed for, for a very long time. This is, let's say, with the MDMA and PTSD. Like I said, each one has a slightly different effect. But, mm-hmm. uh, and the same thing with the, the psilocybin. The therapist is there. So it's, there, it's therapeutic. It's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So you're doing the psychotherapy while you're being assisted by the drug. And then you take that information you got during the sort of drug induced session. And then you can then carry that out forward to other sessions where you don't need the drug anymore. So now you can work on those issues that came up in those other set in that other setting. So there's a lot of pieces to this and, you know, we're still trying to figure out why it has such an impactful effect, but I think part of the effect, it's not necessarily the, the drug itself, which is like with the serotonin, you need it every day. It's the, the psychic effect somehow. The, the actual, you know, the, the, the psychological experience rather than changing your neuro, neurochemistry. It's allowing mm-hmm. you to have a certain psychedelic experience or have a certain perspective, a perspective shift. I, I liken it to those astronauts that have an overview effect. You know, they see the earth from above, from far away, and it like mm-hmm. eventually shifts their whole perspective, right? And, and that kind of shift in perspective that these drugs allow, just you that experience with you. So again, it's not about the psychopharmacology mm-hmm. per se, like the traditional psychedelic drugs. It's about the experience. And that's why those microdoses don't necessarily have the kind of impact because you actually need the psychic effect. So there's been some research with the psilocybin um, looking at um, kind of mapping out brain connectivity um, um, and using also something called MEG, which is a neuroimaging technique as well. But what you see is greater um, signal diversity across the brain. Um, so if you think about it, if you're like trying to map out connectivity, you see a lot of like local connections in the brain, right? And some long range connections in terms of like communication pathways, let's say, or like if you have a bunch of roads in the brain, like which are the ones that are the most heavily trafficked, mm-hmm. right? And they tend to be more local ones with a couple of long range ones, but they're filtered because if your brain was, communicating every place all the time, it would be sort of chaotic, right? You need some filtering so things make sense and they're logical. But on psilocybin, we see there's sort of like an opening of the filter. So you get a lot more traction across a whole variety of different um, connections. So there's sort of more dialogue between different parts of the brain, uh, which can be chaotic if you're in that state all the time. I don't think it would be good to be in a psychedelic state all the time. Maybe it'd be a bit like having you know schizophrenia where there's too much stimulation and not enough filtering. But in these states, you get this, you know, as I said, this greater signal diversity, um, greater um, you know, possibilities in terms of pathways in the brain, in terms of connection. So in in a way you can think outside the box, right? If you if you if you were to think very divergently all the time. Again, a lot of the thoughts might not make sense. Um, it might not be tied to reality, but occasionally if you can go into this brain state, um, it can actually be therapeutic 
right? If you can go there in a kind of, again, a controlled environment for a limited period of time, um, it allows you to have a, a different experience of, of reality because, you know, our brain is just approximation. See the forest right, for the trees, in other words. We're what? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this kind of allows for a wider repertoire of um, possible, let's say, brain states and experiences in the moments. I have a question about, let's say, uh, pharmaceutical addiction tapering. And if someone's being treated for, let's say, anxiety or depression on a benzodiazepine, for example, and they want to taper off, is this something that could help them uh, actually achieve it? And if so, how? And what is the efficacy? Yeah. So, I mean, with any, especially like the benzos, the benzodiazepines are very addictive. So no matter what, like it's never good. It's not recommended to just stop, right? You have to taper off these drugs because you can have very bad effects actually, even with the serotonin drugs as well. You know, your brain, because of neuroplasticity, it accommodates to certain drugs. It changes its synapses to accommodate the drug. And so if you suddenly take away the drug, like you can have very bad effects. So the idea is to taper down with any drug regardless, but it might decrease your need for the drug because if you're taking, let's say a benzo for anxiety and suddenly you do the psychedelic and your anxiety is gone, you know, then it would make, you don't really need the benzo anymore. And then you can actually taper off. I don't know that it would change the tapering off process. So like, let's say for an example, I'm just going to do an extreme example of like, someone who is doing cocaine, right? Let's say someone is doing a stimulant. Um, it could be methamphetamine, whatever, that suddenly the brain is getting overstimulated and the brain wants homeostasis. It wants to adjust. So it says, it tells, you know, the, the DNA like tells the proteins what to do. And it's saying there's too much stimulation. We need to downregulate. We need to shut down some of our receptors so that we're not getting overstimulated to adjust for this new environment because there's so much, let's say, cocaine in the system. And so it does, it's a process of, let's say down, um, you know, shutting down some receptors so it doesn't get overexcited. Suddenly you take the cocaine away. Now the brain is understimulated, right? And then it, it needs the cocaine just to feel normal. And there's a process where it needs to now upregulate again. It needs to re kind of open those synapse, the, the, those receptors and regrow them to adapt to that. So that readaption process, that's where you get a lot of the withdrawal symptoms as you're changing back over to readjust. So, you know, I don't know if these psychedelics will help with the withdrawal symptoms um, with drugs, whether it's coming off the benzo or other drugs. I do know, though, there are stories with people with, um, let's say, addiction to heroin who go down to South America and do ayahuasca and, you know, it breaks their addiction cycle. So I just think there's a lot we don't know yet about how these drugs work. And that's hence why, like Johns Hopkins now has a center for psychedelic research and like, you know, major, it's becoming mainstream now that major institutions are saying that this is a legitimate thing and we need to start really studying it and understanding the science because I think it just got a bad name in the 60s. It became like, you know, just, just stay away and this is dangerous. And, and it wasn't really investigated properly. So now we're actually doing the work to see what, you know, what's actually happening in the brain. Why is it having these profound effects? And there's just the still we have yet to discover. Mm. Great. Uh, that's a big surprise, of course, because of what seem to be the risks of psychedelics. And you always have to weigh risk against possible benefits, but then you have to know about the benefits. Yeah. Uh, and what you're saying is that the evidence has been coming in for benefits in, in these very, very difficult life situations that people do get caught up in. Uh, and that's really important. One of the readings I did last night talked about mystical experiences as possibly being curative or at least helpful in some situation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that anything that can give you an experience of connectivity or being sort of something larger than oneself can be very therapeutic. So I think the thing with the psychedelics is that it's a quick way to jump to get there, but mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need the drugs if you can get there in natural ways. And that's how I kind of started down this road because I got interested in, well, I was interested in the unconscious and unconscious processes, but I got interested in how to access the unconscious. And, and one way 
was creativity or getting into these flow states and kind of got interested in what's going on in the brain when we're in these flow states. And then like, oh, look, that's similar to what's happening when we're doing, when people do psychedelics. It's also similar to certain types of meditation. It's also similar to certain types of dream states. So I think that if you can, if people can train themselves, whether it is to get into a meditative state, like transcendental meditation or creative states, you know, where they're in this flow, where you lose your sense of self and time and place, you uh-huh. feel a sense of connection with like everything and, and the sense of kind of peace and grounding. And so that being, it's almost like the anxiety and the depression can't coexist at the same time. Like if you're in that one brain state, you can't be in the other. I and see. so they're almost antithetical to each other because in one sense, you know, you have a decreased dorsolateral prefrontal cortex when you're in these flow states and then the others want you have increased activation. So it's like, if you're in one, you can't be in the other. And so I think some of these drugs are quick ways to access that, but you can get to these, or if, you know, having a mystical experience can be transformative. You don't necessarily need the drug. So if you think about experiences, I don't know, you know, we've had, I've had, you know, I've backpacked across Europe and, you know, I went to these exotic places and I would have these, some of these mystical experiences, you know, like being on top of a mountain in like the Isle of Skye in Scotland and, you know, looking out and, and you, you, it's almost like people have a religious experience, but it's, it's all about just something being connected to something larger than oneself because we're only here for a little blip of time, you know, our individual lives. I mean, we have these big egos, right. But they're really relatively like kind of meaningless. And that's also profound, like this sort of existential meaninglessness of it, yet they're full of meaning. And so, but sometimes connecting with the, with the other or being outside yourself or seeing a larger picture can separate you from your little life problems that seem to be so big and they can have a really therapeutic effect that people can kind of get that perspective, like a kind of cosmic perspective as some people call it. And then feel a little bit like separated from their daily life, you know, whatever they're having a fight with their spouse or something. But in the great picture, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that, you know, tragic. So I think those mystic experiences, if you can find them and however people can get there, get to their own personal kind of flow state or whatever you want to call this, they should work towards that. Um, and the drugs, as I said, are really a quick route or a route for people who have such severe you know, trauma where it's difficult for them to achieve these states without the help of, of a drug. Interesting. And what's new about this, I think, of course, is that it appears to be a systematic piece of science that this is coming out of. So it's not no longer quite in the realm of the absolutely mysterious and inconceivable aspects of experience. It looks like it's almost becoming a recipe, let's say, that human beings can be safely guided through and and which can be life-changing. Yeah. I mean, as we understand more, we can understand about, you know, the underlying neural mechanisms. We can understand more about like the right, the correct dosage or, you know, the interactive effects and, you know, what to stay away from for certain people. Ultimately, it'll come down to an individualized approach. Like how does your particular genetic structure going to interact best with which one of these drugs and at what dose and, you know, starting to refine this process because everybody is different, you know, for example, DMT, it affects the serotonin system. You know, there are certain people who aren't certain types of drugs that you can't take if you're on MAO inhibitor, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is a treatment for depression. You shouldn't take the DMT because that has can interact with each other and affect right. the serotonin system. So like there are all sorts of things that as we delve deeper that we can refine the process. And I mean, it's the same thing with this analogy of, with um, marijuana as well. Like when, when I was a kid, <laughs> there was like, you would, I don't know. I mean, I hear you would just like get a bag of some random stuff. And <laughs> nice switch. A friend told me. Um, you know, I'm yeah, holding but, it for a friend, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. I, I this from a friend. But you know, you would get a random bag of weed from mm-hmm. someone and be like, okay, I'll smoke this. Now, like, 
um, you know, I remember like going to Amsterdam and this was only, you can only go to Amsterdam for this, but you can like order it on a menu. Oh, I want this particular strain of, you know, weed that makes me more relaxed or this one that gives me more energy or a combination of the indigo and whatever. I mean, you West Coast people probably know more about this than me, but, you know, you can order it on a menu. It's refined, which strain, which has what effect, you know? And so it's kind of the same with this. It's like, as we start to understand it better, we can, we can streamline the process and maybe get rid of some of the negative side effects as well. Like some people are afraid of psychedelics because they might have a bad trip, right? What if we could like remove a bad trip or somehow, you know, play around with the chemical structure so that it's always pleasant and it doesn't induce anxiety. So yes, I think the more we know, um, the better we'll be able to refine the process. Yeah. Groundbreaking, really. So Heather, if there was one word that you could choose to reflect your thoughts about this, what word would you choose? It is so difficult to reflect my thoughts throughout this entire discussion is what we're saying. Well, uh, whatever, you know, uh, something that's on the top of your mind. Okay. I would say possibilities, possibility. Good. That's great. Wonderful. That that is, uh, and and it's possibilities that never existed before, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Enhancing our own possibilities in in our individual lives and us as, you know, a human species, you know, what is possible and sort of trying to um, create greater possibility within us individually and us as as we continue to evolve. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. And Natalie, do you want to... Gush all over Heather because we love her so much. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You are just uh, so brilliant. And we are so grateful to have this time with you. And thank you for the beautiful word of the day. Possibility. Let's all say it. Possibility. Possibility. Love it. And love you so much, Heather. You are such a bright star and a genius and we are just so grateful to share some time with you and we hope you come back with some more new news as it unfolds in your extraordinary career in your life and thank you so much thank you thank you guys it's been a pleasure and an honor and i'm happy to come back anytime you'll have me so thank you yay (laughs) thanks bernie can you sign us off to our listeners please in the beautiful way that you do i can try this has been a podcast on consciousness produced by Natalie Geld. Heather Berlin has been our wonderful guest uh, who has opened up so many possibilities that I never believed in before, but they're be- seeming to be becoming possible. And uh, I'm Bernard Bars for On Consciousness and hope you enjoyed this session. As promised, to show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books B-O-O-K-S in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S. And thank you for listening.